Good afternoon, everyone. I want to thank Dean Markham for that wonderful introduction. And I want to thank the community here for being so warm and kind to me. I came in last night. We wanted to get me in so that I wouldn't get caught in traffic, you understand. And so I was, um, came in last night and um, uh, Brother Mark picked me up from the airport and took me to the, uh, to the hotel. We got a little lost on our way. Uh, I think two Baptist ministers, we were chatting and having such a good time. Uh, we forgot where we were. And so uh, we wandered through a few hotels uh, until we got to the right one. But I want to thank him. <laughs> thank him for, for picking me up. And it's so wonderful to look out and see so many people who I have known for many years and who I love. I don't want to start calling names, but there is one name I do have to call, and that's the Reverend Dr. Judy Fentress Williams, my dear sister. She is a fabulous scholar and a wonderful person, and she is married to a fabulous brother, my, my brother from another mother. So when you see him, you tell him to pay me the money he owes me. <laughs> That's just a joke. Friends, I, I bring you warmest greetings from Dean Gregory Sterling, the faculty and the staff of Yale Divinity School. We are seeking every day to speak truth to power and to train women and men, to train people who wish to do the same. And I am so glad to be in the presence of those who are trying to do that here in this part of the world. This is a beautiful, beautiful space. The last time I was here was many years ago uh, in the old chapel, and this one is really nice. We are trying to do something similar at Yale. We're trying to build a living village, uh, a set of buildings that will um, have almost no footprint, that will be self-sustaining in every possible way. If we're successful, they'll be the first kind of the first of their kind in North America. So we are we are working hard to do that. I'm, I'm not going to take up an offering for Yale here, but I just wanted to just mention that. My friends, today, I want to speak to you in hope in these racially troubled times. I was raised by people who taught me what hope actually is. I was raised by people of the earth, of the dirt, who lived on land that they did not own and who raised crops for people who would never pay them an honest wage for their back-breaking labor. My people were sharecroppers, sharecroppers in the South, who turned their dreams toward the North and toward what Isabel Wickerson called in her marvelous book, The Warmth of Other Sons. The black folks who raised me lived in the constant reign of racial oppression and great disappointment, moving from 
the Jim Crow South to the racist North, as they would say, from racist straw bosses to racist factory foremen, from Southern struggles to Northern struggles, from old forms of being overworked and underpaid to new forms of the same situation. And in all that, in the midst of all of it, my parents and my people worked hard at living life to the fullest, searching each day for the joy and peace to be found in it, and never, ever giving up hope. But hope for them was not a sentiment or a feeling or a cunning wager into the future. Their hope was born of their deep faith in and love for Jesus. Their every step in the footsteps of Jesus, each day asking for his strength, his guidance, his wisdom, his voice to permeate the quotidian realities of daily struggle. Hope they taught me Hope, they taught me, was and is a discipline. We must be disciplined by hope. And my friends, we need the discipline of hope as we are now entering an extraordinarily difficult and complicated moment to be Christian, especially in the West, and especially in this country. We are surrounded by people who name the name of Christ and yet give witness to a Christianity bound to whiteness and to a faith that performs white nationalistic sensibilities. It is because they name the name of Christ, that we who are Christian cannot isolate ourselves and our witness from their witness. We cannot easily, we cannot overcome this complicated moment by pretending that one form of Christian witness can easily distance itself from another form of witness. Now, we all here can say to ourselves that there are many Christianities and we inhabit one of the better ones. <laughs> Unfortunately, we all share, we all share a racial legacy that marks all of modern Christianity. Race, racial reasoning, and whiteness race, racial reasoning, and whiteness are our legacies, and we carry a burden in addressing them. It is a strange ownership I am inviting us to claim this afternoon, one that guards us, guards us all from the fantasy that we can separate the wheat from the weeds 
Though such separating has always been a tempting impulse for us, the sense of ownership I am commending to us makes us responsible for a way of seeing and living that would fundamentally challenge the racial condition of the Western world and the horrors of whiteness. What joins the living and the seeing is how we imagine our life in this world, not only what it is, but what we desire it to be and what we aim at by our actions, sisters and brothers. The Christian imagination, as it now exists, is a distorted thing. I have been writing and thinking about the contours of our distortion, of our distorted social imagination for some time now, its depth and its breadth, and the sense of urgency we need to address it. It is a distortion not easy to see, but easier to sense in the relentless racial antagonism that structures so much of Western life. We live in what feels like a never-ending reality of racial animus that is turning so many people toward hopelessness. It seems ironic, terribly ironic. But today, my sisters and brothers, many people are performing their faith, leaning toward hopelessness. You know what it's like to teach students who are leaning toward hopelessness? But this is a sign of the distortion that circles us all. It is a distortion that lives at the site of the becoming and the being of a Christian. And it is at those sites of becoming and being, becoming and being Christian, that our imaginations must be renewed. We must renew the becoming. You see, there is a depth and radicality to becoming Christian that we have been denied. In large measure, denied in large measure to the history of modern colonial Christianity. The Christian settlers who came to the New Worlds imagined that they had an answer to a question that no indigenous peoples were asking. What should we become? What should they become? The Christian settlers had an answer to that question because they knew what all indigenous peoples needed to become. Christian and civilized. Marked by a salvific progress. That salvific progress was to the colonialist way of thinking a movement toward authentic maturity that reached from the body to the land itself. The colonialist, merchants, missionaries, 
soldiers, and many others. They saw themselves as builders. We must never forget this. They saw themselves as builders. And to be able to build, to be able to build is its own justification. It is the creature creating, growing, and molding life. It is what the creature must do. This commitment to a life aimed at maturity joined visions of salvation to ideas of the transformation of lands and peoples. And together, it formed visions, the underbelly of visions of Christian missions. What also formed there was whiteness. Whiteness formed at this joining. Whiteness was from its very beginning a becoming, my friends. A becoming marked by formation toward three demonic virtues. Control, mastery, and possession. Control, mastery, and possession. It is the becoming white, the formation in and toward whiteness that moved deep into the bloodstream of a Christian imagination. Now, in order to understand what I am saying, you must forget about whiteness as phenotype, as bodily characteristics, even as a European heritage, and see it for what it is, a sick vision of maturity, a vision of reaching toward and arriving at a maturity that can judge the whole world by how well it has achieved mastery of its world, control of its land and possessions, and possession of its resources, and a freedom to live unencumbered by other people. Every people encountered by the colonialist had a process of becoming, becoming adult, becoming leader, entering one's calling, one's vocation, if you will. And all of this was made visible by their life in the land. So the children of the young become, so the children become the young, excuse me, and then the young become the leaders of their people. Then they become the elders that guide. Then they become stories that are told. Then they join the eternal presence that covers the ground and surrounds the people. The ancestors speak from the ground. So many peoples have said, the ancestors speak from the ground, move through the wind and sky, are felt in the rain. They sound with the animals. From the ground we come and to the ground we return. We've heard this before. The quality and character of a life is calibrated by that movement from, through, and to the earth for so many peoples. For them, the world that was becoming, the way to become, 
required the earth, the ground, the water, the skies, the animals, days and seasons, snow and rain, sun and heat, morning and evening, stones, mountains, trees and forests, streams and rivers. The becoming they lived moved in and out of all these things and more. But if all these things and more are taken away, if land and animal, earth and sky as they knew it are taken away, turned into something else, let's, let's call this something else, let's call it private property and individual possession, how will they become? become fully aware, fully alive, fully attuned to the wisdom of their people. That kind of becoming, involving the land, involving the earth, that kind of becoming was taken away from so many people and in effect, in effect, taken away from Christian faith. The problem of a becoming woven in and through whiteness was not that the colonialists changed indigenous life. The problem is not that things change. Things change. We could even say, we could even say things evolve. Nor is the problem the impulse to transform. Transformation is not inherently evil. The horror here is the denial of the voice and vision of peoples who inhabit place. The horror here is the denial of the basic wisdoms of peoples that should shape change and transformation, but not the change and transformation of indigenous peoples first, but the change and transformation of the Christian colonialists. The Christian colonialists who sought to destroy indigenous ways of becoming bequeathed to us all a Christianity that does not know how to become more and yet be Christian, how to enter a place, sense the place, and join a people and allow that place and people to expand who we are and could be. Such an expansion was the birthright of Christians, a birthright that we, like Esau, gave up almost from the very beginning of our faith. We were Gentiles. Gentiles becoming followers of the Jewish Jesus. It was and is this Gentile becoming that points to the heart of Christian conversion. We entered the story of another people. This is the truth at the very beginning. We entered another people's story, biblical Israel, and their story became our story, not by conquest, but through an invitation to communion, to life together. There in Acts 10, 
We see the Spirit's stunning invitation to join life offered to Jew and Gentile. Remember, remember in Acts 10, Peter is commanded to eat the animals of other peoples. Living as we do on this side of colonialism and the commodification of everything, it is very difficult to see the significance of this command. For so many of us, dare I say for almost all of us, animals are for the most part utility, natural resources, and sites of consumption or entertainment. There was, however, a time that revealed a different way of viewing animals. And there are yet people in this world, there are yet people in this world that hold to these old ways. The old way of viewing animals bound them to us as extensions of family, faith, memory, body. We and our animals were one, our identities encircling and being encircled by them. Whether people of the black bear or the salmon or the raven or the puffin or the horse, we live not simply viewing the animals, but as John Berger said, being viewed by them. Living always knowing that we are being watched and judged by animals. We live knowing that we lived with them in relationships that we saw as mutual, reciprocal, and joined. To see animals was to see peoples. To touch and eat an animal was no thoughtless act. To eat the animals that were associated with the people was to move into their space of living. The space of people and animals. To take hold of their animals was to join them and to imagine the flourishing of life through participating in the community of creatures that surrounded their bodies. A sheet of animals descended from heaven in Acts 10 and the creator of the world said to Peter, eat. In so doing, God placed Peter in the midst of the world and said to him, join it. Join them. Become one with them. Yeah, the ones you've called them all your life. By doing this, the Spirit of God set in place a radical becoming that yet lives with us, sisters and brothers. But Christians very early, how early we're not sure, but very early, decided that we did not like the story of becoming, of expanding our lives through joining Jew and Gentile. And we, my friends, sad to say, but we must speak the truth, we have never been able, as Christians, to imagine joining without eradication. We've never been able to imagine assimilation without death. 
So we Gentile Christians decided that we were the real people of God and the Jewish people did not know the truth of God or of the world. They needed to become us. This Gentile hubris grew and expanded over the centuries and it is this Gentile hubris that is the engine, that is the inner logic of whiteness. Many scholars who study whiteness, who study race, because they don't know this beginning, they don't truly see what's at the heart of whiteness. Gentile hubris. Those Christian colonialists who formed our world shaped a Christianity that does not know how to become, how to expand through joining into the lives of others. So many Christians, so many Christians are yet to be introduced to their own Gentile story, the story of a radical inclusion into another people and a way of joining and sharing and expanding. That should be our way of life. That should be our calling card. Yet to take hold of this way of life, we must overcome the theological and spiritual disease that is whiteness through overcoming the way it thinks, the way it feels, and the way it hides. The way it thinks, the way it feels, and the way it hides. Challenging the way whiteness thinks. Whiteness thinks, or to be more precise, whiteness has framed thinking inside an imperial position and an imperialist desire. We all are the inheritors of what I have called a pedagogical imperialism, born of a distorted vision of Christian mission. You see, Christians enter the new worlds imagining themselves as the teachers of the world and the world as perpetual learners, always in need of arriving at the truth. We Christians presented a God who knows everything and needs to learn nothing. And we thereby performed and yet perform a Christianity that knows everything and needs to learn nothing. We have turned the educational life of a Christian on its head. The God who delights the God we love delights in learning of God's own creation. And in Jesus, God learns. God has entered the time and the places of the creature, moving and enjoying each moment of the creature's existence. Jesus learned, and then he taught. And I am so thankful for the order of things there. His teaching, however, was embedded in his learning. It is precisely this deeper reality of incarnation in relation to making disciples that we have lost. We have preferred to impose theological knowledge, denigrate indigenous knowledge, and present a God who cannot be found in the learning but only in the teaching. 
We have presented a Christianity that witnesses only when it talks and never when it listens. Imperial Christianity gave birth to this pedagogical imperialism which turned the entire world outside the colonial West into perpetual students and those in the West as eternal teachers. Whiteness thinks always as a teacher and never as a learner. To be a learner is to enter the world of another's ecology of knowing, willing and eager, willing and eager to listen and to sense the world, sense the world through the senses and sensibilities of another people. The colonial legacy we inherited, however, fundamentally denied other ways of knowing and turn knowledge itself always into commodity because the goal of knowledge for the colonialists was never relationship, never an abiding communion and life together. Knowledge was a matter of acquisition. Within the colonialist framework, to know a thing is to own a thing. And that work of gaining knowledge, the work of securing knowledge, was and is always a work of struggle and contention inside that framework. To inhabit the way whiteness thinks is to always think inside white masculinist form. We who teach and inhabit the academy, we all need, sisters and brothers, we all need to rethink our doctoral formation. Even if we had exemplary mentors, the image that guided our formation and was institutionalized in our curriculums and pedagogies was toward the cultivation of the white, self-sufficient man. One who would embody in relation to knowledge and life, possession, mastery, and control. How does one arrive at this white, self-sufficient, masculinist form? Through serious, rigorous intellectual engagement. And most of us have been misformed and deformed to imagine serious intellectual engagement in only one modality, through confrontation, through an exaggerated disputatio that stimulates European chivalric culture war culture, where only through intense and heated exchange and isometric-like struggle will we press as hard as possible against one another's conceptual positions. Do we arrive at the truth, rigorous thinking, and strong and sure thought? Beginning with the colonial period, this European cultural form of chivalric intellectual engagement combined with capitalist forms of exchange and with the fragmentation of knowledge, together they became the foundation of the sick ecologies of knowledge that characterize so much of Western intellectual exchange today, where our intellectual struggles and arguments are over increasingly smaller and smaller bits of knowledge extracted from their life worlds and then weaponized and turned into commodities. 
We challenge the way whiteness thinks by entering freshly into the life of Jesus as a learner. He learns from the creation and the creatures. And in and through his learning, he creates a life of humility and communion. Humility and communion. Humility and communion should mark the character of our intellectual life where we show deep desire to learn from those whose ways of knowing have been excluded and we aim all our knowing toward life together. Of course, let me just say as a professor, I am not against argument and disagreement and contention. But we must release ourselves. We must release ourselves from the illusion that intellectual life, and especially the intellectual life of a Christian, is built on the performance of this white masculinist form and release ourselves from the lie that we will arrive at authentic community only through the performance of this sick form. A community of Christian teachers and scholars must aim at more than being or cultivating merchants of ideas and referees of intellectual fights. We aim at an abiding life together that would crumble the way whiteness wants us all to think. But we must also challenge the way whiteness feels. We must also challenge its desire to be normal. Whiteness feels normal. Whiteness feels natural. And many of the obstacles of overturning whiteness are due to the success of that powerful affective structure, my friends. For over 25 years, whew, that's a long time, isn't it? For over 25 years, I taught a course at my former institution on race and theology and the black church. It was a required course, so students had to take it. And for over 25 years of teaching this course, I experienced every possible form of student resistance to thinking deeply about race, and especially thinking about whiteness. What drove all that resistance, my sisters and brothers, what drove all that resistance is the simple truth that they did not want to feel the abnormality of whiteness. They did not want to feel its structural realities, its structuring realities that envelope their entire existence. So they were angry at me. <laughs> they were angry at me, not because of what I said, not because of what we read, not even because of what we discussed, but because of what I was making them feel. By the time we got to the middle of the semester, I could see it in their pleading eyes. I could look into their pleading eyes. They would do anything if I would just stop making them feel this whiteness and allow them to return to the comfort of feeling normal. Whiteness feels 
And it always feels positive unless it is being questioned. So to question whiteness feels terrible because it feels as if we are tearing at the fabric of a people's life, of people's lives and questioning the right of particular people to exist. To question and critique whiteness feels like we are throwing people into chaos and fragmentation. It feels like hate speech. Robin DiAngelo, in her wonderful book, calls this deep discomfort at the questioning of whiteness, white fragility. Great phrase, white fragility. And she notes what I experienced for decades, that so many people would do anything and everything in their power to never feel it. They want to return, as she says, to a racial equilibrium always away from those feelings. Questioning whiteness, whiteness, exposing its abnormality brings people into a forest of feelings they would prefer to escape. Feelings of guilt and fear and feelings of being overwhelmed by the sheer expansiveness, even ubiquity of whiteness's reach into our lives. The deepest anxiety, my friends, of so many people is not that whiteness is inescapable, but that the feelings of whiteness are inescapable. Both its guilt and its addictive and seductive power. Whiteness feels good as long as no one tries to make it feel bad. We challenge the way whiteness feels by first recognizing that whiteness feels. Whiteness feels as it thinks and thinks as it feels. The first mistake, the first mistake we make is to fail to recognize how much racial reasoning and racial discourse is driven by deeply entangled thought and feeling. But to renounce the way whiteness feels it's not to renounce feeling. It is to question the structure of feeling that has taught people to so deeply identify with whiteness that they cannot imagine, they cannot imagine a life freed from its vision and shaped inside a whole new affective structure of joy and peace. They cannot imagine what so many people of color imagine every day, every day. A life freed, a life freed from the derogatory racial visions of their existence and shaped inside a new affective structure of joy and peace. Intellectual after intellectual from one generation to the next has struggled to envision and articulate a psychic space where life can be lived in integrity and wholeness and held together against the affective structures of a racial world's vision of blackness or Asianness or Indianness or any other racial essence. Those of us who claim this legacy of struggle, we press through the constellation of negative feelings that are woven into the multiple derogatory visions of people of color. 
It is this struggle that holds the key to renouncing the way whiteness feels. All of us together must join in the shared work of pressing through, pressing through the affective structure of racial existence, especially whiteness. This effort has always been a work deeply inside soteriology, deeply inside imagining and enacting a saved life, a life freed from bondage in the name of Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. But first you must be able to call it bondage. Challenging the way whiteness thinks, challenging the way whiteness feels, must be tied finally to challenging the way whiteness hides, the way it hides. Whiteness always aims at invisibility and ignorance. It wants invisibility, not through concealment, but through looking. Whiteness wants to make itself a way of looking at the world without ever announcing itself as a way of looking at the world. It wants to be the eyes looking through the camera before it becomes the eyes being seen by the camera. It does want to become the eyes being seen by the camera, the eyes of humanity, the eyes of everyone and anyone wishing to be seen. This is the wish born of whiteness. Whiteness aims at being the norming norm, the baseline upon which we can imagine the true, the good, the beautiful, the noble, the fully human. But to ensure this kind of invisibility, this kind of visible invisibility, if you will, whiteness needs to control space. This is my point. Race has always been a matter of geography. If you remember nothing else today, please remember this. And whiteness always aims to structure itself geographically, on the ground, in the shape of communities, cities, towns, rural and urban areas, neighborhood by neighborhood, always creating what I call geographic whiteness. Whiteness comes to rest in space. Whiteness always forms segregated spaces. It forms lives lived in parallel, separated, either separated by miles or even inches. It constructs bordered life, life lived in separate endeavors of wish fulfillment. My friends, I, even at this moment in 2019, I continue to be amazed by people who have been raised in all white communities or communities where the presence of people of color were so highly monitored and controlled and who see that habitation as a naturally occurring phenomenon like a waterfall or a rock formation. Such places breed a profound ignorance that conceals its deformity, denying to those so formed within it the truth that their worlds were highly structured segregationist spaces enabled by genocide, market manipulations, city planning, the wishes and whims of developers, the actions of real estate brokers, and of course, the police. 
and the unrelenting will of whiteness to exist unencumbered by non-white people. We challenge the way whiteness hides by overturning segregated spaces. Segregated spaces must be turned toward living places where people construct together an everyday that turns life toward health, giving directions. Imagine, my friends, imagine, my friends, the work of constructing an everyday, a new kind of everyday on the ground, on the ground. Overcoming whiteness begins by reconfiguring life geographically so that all the flows work differently. All the flows would work differently. The flows of money, the flows of education, of support, of attention. Now they would work differently. They would move across people who have been separated by the processes that have formed us racially, economically, and nationally. Imagine, my friends, imagine constructing an everyday on the ground that does different, that does, does our lives differently, that starts with the communities that we have left behind, those places no longer imagined through the goals of whiteness, of possession, of control, and mastery. Nothing to master in abandoned communities. Nothing to possess with people in need and with no money. But for Christians, for us, this is where we go to do our imagining. We join such places and such people. We move to them. We stay in them or we form them or we advocate for them or we protect them. The, the we here, the we Christian here are all those willing to live toward a different formation of place and against the formation of geographic whiteness. We fight against the segregation that shapes our worlds and we work to weave lives together. My friends, we have a legacy untouched, an inheritance forgotten. We have an imagination that the world is yet to see in action. This, my friends, is the kind of imagination that might renew that one word we all know so well that's being used so badly, but that we cannot abandon the word Christian. Thank you very much.